I'm glad you're here. I suspect you're as many of you are like I am, and that is at this age I'm glad to be anywhere, but I'm particularly glad to be here today. <clears throat> the shadows are lengthening. Uh, I will be here one more week before I go on my uh, July holiday, so I will see you next week, but then not until August. And uh, So uh, this time of year I began to feel a little uh, nervous about the fact that we have for the last few years, taped these lectures. Um, and I don't quite remember when that practice began. I suspect it was in some inferiority overcompensation for all the other preachers who have tapes, you know, that they distribute. Uh, market them all over the world and create great profits for God. I think that's the way I'd initiate. Ours, ours has never really worked. That is to say, um, my father enjoys them, but um, be that as it may. The reason I worry about taping them is that uh, Carl Jung said that extroverts talk out loud in order to find out what they're thinking. <laughs> and that's uh, still dangerous. And particularly when I'm this close to the water in Michigan, uh, I begin to uh, pre-associate. When I do that in public, it's dangerous, but it is exciting. Uh, I don't know what it says about me that I say such uh, heretical and scandalous things, but I know what it says about you who come to listen. <laughs> so on Mother's Day, we talked about AIDS. <laughs> on this fa Father's Day, we're going to talk about sex. You want to go make some phone calls before... <laughs> Before we start, so I really want to uh, confess that the lections for today that I'll be preaching on at eleven o'clock are were such a uh, large uh, offering of uh, morsels that I had to be specific about what I was going to preach on at eleven, and so I spent most of Friday in my study, sort of winnowing and picking and choosing trying to get 10 minutes of something significant out of what was could have been a lifetime of preaching because we have three great lessons this week. And so I'm going to preach on one piece of the Old Testament lesson 11. Um, that's difficult to do. I guess most of you know that, that uh, who speak in public know that, how difficult it is to, to speak 10 minutes. Remember Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson said that it when asked how long it took him to write a 10-minute speech, he said two weeks. Uh, how long does it take you to write a 20-minute speech? And he said one week. How long does it take you to prepare an hour's speech? He said, I'm now prepared. <laughs> so, um, I saw the integration of the Old Testament and the New Testament lesson in a way 
that I didn't have time to get at in the sermon at, at 11, so I thought I would do that with you all today. And it's an interesting um, piece of understanding human nature. As I'm fond of saying that the, the scriptures are, have more functions than we can, can account for other than making us feel guilty, which seems to be what most of the church has done with it most of the time, is to sort of hold it up as if it were some judgment upon us rather than what it is, a love story between God and these people. Um, but one of the functions of Scripture is to acquaint us with human nature. And so we have in two stories today, which are the David and Bathsheba story, which is the Old Testament story that we use in our lectionary today. We have the David-Bathsheba story, but we also have the story of the woman of the streets who comes in to the Pharisee's house when Jesus is at table with the Pharisee and she washes Jesus' feet with her own tears and her own hair and anoints his feet with oil. And she is a prostitute. Uh, what we have here is, I think, something of the subjective truth and the objective truth about human beings that we need to hold both consciously, for they may be contradictory and create for us anxiety, which splits our egos in two, into which always enters somebody who has a stronger ego at that time than we, and tells us that only the external truth is true, and only the rules make any difference, and we wind up empty inside, though we have followed the external rules from our youth. And here we have the divine forgiveness of God to David, who not only commits adultery, but he has the husband of the woman with whom he commits adultery, has him killed. This is King David. And then the compassion that Jesus shows uh, in the New Testament is with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors, who were the worst sinners uh, for the religious of their time. Uh, because they took money away, which is more important than uh, uh, either sex or power in some sense. Um, I always said that the Presbyterians are like the Pharisees. They're more interested in having their debts forgiven than they are their sins. Um, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, in, in their translation of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us for our debts, that's a one of those incredibly charming religious jokes. <laughs> so anyway, we have this uh, unconditional love of God once again in forgiving David for this horrendous external uh, act of murder and adultery. And Jesus... We're giving this woman who, for reasons beyond our understanding, has been a woman of the streets. Uh, and what I want to talk about is that there is a subjective truth about love that sometimes runs counter to the objective truth about the rules concerning behavior and love. And this creates for us great difficulty in understanding. 
I mean, it's an ethical problem, obviously, and I am on shaky, not shaky ground, but thin ice, let's say, uh, because it's so often easily misunderstood when we begin to talk about something so powerful and important as human sexuality and love. That's why we don't talk about it very much, except in, in uh, very private situations. But I think it's the church's responsibility and a priest of the church's responsibility to talk about the confusion of the subjective truth and the objective truth, the contradiction and confusion. For instance, who among us doesn't know out of our own experience how desperately the world needs love? Who among us if we just scratched the surface of consciousness, would not find an incredible loneliness. Even those of us who are married or who are in families, who have people all around us, have a, a sense of loneliness. Chekhov says, if one wants to know true aloneness, marry. And how desperate each of us is for some affirmation, not in general. I don't want to hear that God loves me because I want God with skin on him. That's the doctrine of the incarnation, by the way. That's why I am a Christian is because we have a story that says God has skin on him. This is not sad in our own quiet desperation saying, I wish somebody would give me some affection and affirmation. How little we receive. How little we risk in giving. And how desperately and deeply it is the nature of human beings to seek to satiate a need for love and affection. And so the subjective truth is the same for each of us and indeed for all of us, it is a collective truth, and that is that we need so desperately some affection and affirmation. Now the objective truth is that this gift of love is so holy, on the hierarchy of values it is the most valuable, that it must be contained within boundaries. It is so powerful and creative that it has the exact opposite ability, and that is to destroy and make infinite. So that of love, as Cummings writes, be more careful than of anything. And so culture and religion has said that when you are a being affectionate and affirming, do so in the boundaries of a commitment or a covenant or do so within the boundaries of appropriateness because you are not only playing with electricity, you are playing with God. Now we confuse several things when we 
begin to think and talk like this. One is we confuse genital sexuality and love. We confuse affection uh, with sexuality. But the problem and the reason we do that is because it's the same source for eros and libido, as Freud called it. It's the same source that we find for love. I remember uh, in this small town in Oklahoma in which I grew up, um, because the advent of TV had just come and not many people had them, as I told you before, my, my father was waiting for them to get the bugs out of them before he bought one for our family, so we were among the last to get them. But um, and as I wrote and was picked up and published in the Post several years ago, an article about, an essay about uh, how air conditioning had ruined neighborhoods, but in those days, people got out at night in the yard and they went for ice cream socials and that kind of thing. One of the things in the small town I grew up in that was uh, the great entertainment was to go to the baseball games at night, the local baseball games. And uh, Tidewater Refinery was the primary source of income uh, in Drumright, Oklahoma in those days. And, and towns had baseball teams and they were sponsored by usually the largest employer in town, so Tidewater had a baseball team. And we used to go out to the Tidewater Park to watch the Tidewater Oilers, Drumright Oilers, play Bristow and Cushing and Oilton and Yale, those great powers of, of minor league baseball. See, you remember them too. I was... Uh, prepubescent, which means I was probably a nine or ten, and uh, went to a baseball game one night, and um, sitting in the stands, I, I don't know if any of you ever saw The Natural, but uh, there was uh, the way they directed that scene where this beautiful woman stood up all in white, and it was like she was the only one in the stands. Well, that's the way this little girl was for me. I saw across uh, the stands this little blonde girl, and it was like the whole world was on still frame, and the only animation was this golden girl who was about my age who was sitting across from me. It's my first remembrance of, of Eros of uh, my sap rising where I saw this little girl and thought to myself, she was meant for me. <laughs> of course, when you're nine or ten, you uh, don't have the social graces or courage to go encounter such a mythological image that comes into your life. 
And so I have uh, integrated her as a part of myself. So I see her from time to time. And anybody who would incarnate her for me would be a very important human being. But as you know, what I'm beginning to tell you is it is a very natural thing for human beings to feel this incredible attraction for other human beings. It is a gift from God, and it is a way to God. This energy that gets constellated where people come into one another's lives, male and female, Male with male, female with female. And already you're nervous because you're confusing eros with genital sexuality. It's not the same. Now, where you have one, you may have the other, but not always so. Human beings have this great need for other human beings. It is the way God made us. It is the way it was meant to be. And so to have this strong passion or eros for another human being is very, very natural. Because it will lead us, if we contain it in covenant and time, it will lead us to God. Now the problem, of course, is that with this subjective truth, we've got objective realities where things get complex and confused. And so we have David and Bathsheba. And you know the story. If you don't know the story, consciously you know it inside. And David is going about his regular tasks and he gets up from a nap, walks out on the roof, and he sees a woman bathing. When I was a little boy, I thought that's why they called her Bathsheba. <laughs> Didn't you? <laughs> of course, it's Bat, which means daughter of uh, Shebite, a man from Sheba. So we don't really know her name. It's Bat Sheba. But he sees her, and he has this incredible erotic desire for her, like the little girl at the ball game. Now, the objective truth begins to have a holy dimension to it. The subjective truth begins to have a holy dimension to it. The objective truth is it is very complex and very dangerous stuff. It's electricity. We have to be very careful when this eros, this strong attachment and desire comes because it is of God. And so the worst thing for this relationship is that David is king because he not only has permission to have a number of wives, he is able to take anybody as his wife. But the problem, if you remember with Bathsheba, she was married to Uriah, who was one of David's servants. And so David calls for her to come to him, and so she does, and he uh, lies with her, uh, which uh, is one of the great biblical euphemisms. And the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, the word for sexual intercourse is yada, y-a-d-a, which means to know. 
I like that because what's going on with sexual intercourse really is the desire to know another. And so when it says in the Bible, he knew her or he knew her not, it really is taking literally the word yada, which means to know. So David knew her. And she sent word later that she was pregnant. Now let's take that on subjective level for a minute. Let's look at it mythologically. Because religious people have to learn to live in two worlds at the same time and pay the price. The great price to pay to live in a subjective world and an objective world, to have a subjective truth and an objective truth. The subjective truth in this story is not unlike uh, Jacob and Esau, where trickery, mendacity, by, in, enabled by the feminine, causes Jacob to steal the birthright. But that was very important subjectively to the holy history of Israel. Objectively, it was cheating. Can you do that? If you cannot do that, then you are not yet where we all need to go, and that is towards spiritual maturity. Spiritual immaturity, it seems to me, is to say, there is only objective truth, and he was a cheat, and he should have been killed for it. Well, it would have ended Hebrew history. The Germans have this term, Heilsgeschichte, that I've used before. It sounds like some other term that they used to have in Drumright, Oklahoma, where I grew up. <laughs> Heilsgeschichte uh, means salvation history. And there is a salvation history, which is a subjective history that is more important than the objective history, the facts and figures. Is it not true with us also? I'm fond of saying to you, and it didn't originate with me, the external world is the artificial world, the internal world is the real world, and that's where we live. Westheimer is not the real world. God's holy name be praised. <laughs> real world is the kingdom within. And the biblical story is not unlike our own story is a kingdom within. To where we have to have the objective rules and we have to obey them and understand them, but there are just times in God's history when the subjective truth is more important than any objective truth. Remember Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, what must I do to get this kingdom that you talk about? He said, you must be born again. He said, you mean I must crawl back up into my mother's womb? And Jesus says, you are spiritually immature to presume objective truth alone. Don't take me literally. It takes very mature people, and that's why not many preachers give license to follow subjective truth because people become licentious. I've always apologized. I was accused one time of saying, well, you are so uh, open and liberal with your theology, uh, people are liable to go off and uh, take license to go do anything they want. To which I responded, they already have that. I didn't give them that. I don't know what my mission is. I think it's 
to be me, but other than that, um, I think I'm, God sent me, if we can talk in those terms personally, um, just, just as a sort of a balance to the rest of those who were called to represent God. Um, as a sort of counterbalance against the guilt. I've never uh, had to talk anybody into being guilty. And I've, I've never had to explain to anybody how it felt. I've never said guilty and somebody say, now what is that? Or how does that feel? So I think I'm called to sit over here and say, uh, you know, Jesus said to the woman taken in adultery and to the woman who was the one with the streets, and uh, God said to David, your sins are forgiven even though they are great. Scripture's story of God's unconditional love for us and His encouragement for our own human nature through instinct and appetite that we would love one another. I'm as confused about that noise as you are, so don't worry about it. <laughs> and so there is this subjective truth that somehow is pervasive through the Scripture and it's the subjective truth that keeps the plot moving. The plot would have ended at a lot of important times had those who were followers of God only followed the rule. I see, I'm nervous and so are you. You mean the fact that he knew Bathsheba and had Uriah killed, that's okay? No, it's not okay. That's bad. It's wrong. You shouldn't do that. But there is at the same time a Geschichte, a salvation history that was dependent upon those human events to move the plot. So what's the message? Well, the message is all things work together for good to them that love God. Remember, Nathan then came, and I'm preaching about that 11, so if you want to hear that story, you can go at 11. Nathan came to David after Uriah's death and told him the parable of the, like the little boy said in one of my Sunday school classes when I was in seminary, the little ee-wee lamb, about the, <laughs> tells the parable of the you lamb. There was a rich man who had a lamb and a poor man, and the poor man loved the lamb, and the rich man had all the lambs he needed, and this poor man had this lamb that he thought was extra special, and uh, he held to his bosom and he ate from his own table and the wayfarer came and the rich man entertained the wayfarer and he didn't want to give up one of his own ewe lambs and so he uh, took the poor man's lamb and gave it, killed it and gave it to the wayfarer for his feast. Remember Nathan said, David, what do you think about that man? And David said, that man should be punished, he's guilty and he should restore fourfold. And Nathan said, David, thou art the man. A wonderful prophetic word. David had to pay the external consequences for his subjective truth. 
And they were great. Because Bathsheba then came to live with him. And Nathan said that the external cost of this internal love will be death. And the child that she's carrying will get sick and die. Now be careful about taking all of this literally. Be really careful. Because there are great costs to love, you know. That first blush of love must be tested with some time. Some say seven years at least. To be sure that this is not a premature birth. Now, over this loss of the child, David does interesting things. He knows at some level, maybe not even at the level of consciousness, that this relationship with Bathsheba was meant to be. I mean, the force toward it was so strong that David could hardly get out of the way. He was sort of the victim of salvation. And the external circumstances for that were great. But he paid a great external cost too. And here's the way he dealt with it because he knew at some level something was to come out of this relationship with Bathsheba that was going to be both costly and at the same time was going to be necessary. When Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the boy whom Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he was very ill. David prayed to God for the child. He fasted, went in, spent the night fasting, lying on the ground. The older men of his household tried to get him to rise from the ground, but he refused. He would eat no food with them. Now here's David, who is with this boy who is very ill, who is the produce of this relationship with Bathsheba. He is absolutely near his own death with grief and worry over this sick child. On the seventh day, I'll be darned. <laughs> you remember the creation story, don't you? You remember the creative years, don't you? You remember every seventh year you're supposed to take a sabbatical? On the seventh day, the boy died, and David's servants were afraid to tell him. While the boy was alive, they said, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How can we now tell him that the boy is dead? They must remember that this is a king, that all that David's been through from the time that he defeated Goliath, through the Jonathan story, through the Saul story, that this is not um, a man without character. He is a man with flaw. He is an imperfect human being, but he is not without character. And so they say, how can we tell him the boy has died? He may do something desperate. But David saw his servants whispering among themselves and guessed that the boy was dead. And he asked, is the boy dead? And David rose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, put on fresh clothes, entered the house of the Lord, 
he went to worship, prostrated himself there. Then he went home, asked for food to be brought, and when it was ready, he ate it. The servants asked him, well, what is this? While the boys lived, you fasted and wept for him, but now that he's dead, you rise up and eat. He answered, while the boy was still alive, I fasted and wept, thinking, it may be that the Lord will be gracious to me, and the boy may live. But now that he's died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Shall I go to him? He will not come back to me. David said, it's over. Death is a part of the process of growth. No options. No one gets off the hook. Everybody visited with death and loss. It's a part of the rhythm. I'm living both subjectively and objectively at the same time. The subjective truth is that I'm called into this energy in the relationship with Bathsheba at great external cost. And I have paid them. And now, let's eat and go on for the morrow. David consoled Bathsheba, his wife. He went to her, had intercourse with her, and she, and now we hear salvation history beginning to roll. Now we begin to know why it was that he saw that little girl in the stands. Now we begin to know what that energy meant for the kingdom of God, though at great external cost. We begin to know why it is that he got up from his nap and he saw Bathsheba. And why all the horrendous cost had to be paid. Even this symbolic and literal death of the innocence of a child. On the seventh day, the full day of creation, he got up and he said, let's go on. Creation has taken another turn. And he went to the one he loved, had intercourse with her, and she bore him a son, and his name was Solomon. Now we know. So that's what that was all about. So that's why. Who among us has not been in a terrible accident or trauma or loss or death and wonder, why in the hell did this happen to me? Only to discover after seven days some increment of growth, some new creation, some death and loss, knowing that means something. And to go and be affectionate with one we love and a new king is born. So that's what that was about. It's hard to hold objective truth and subjective truth in the same place at the same time. We fall off on either side. That is to say, I will follow only my heart come hell or high water. That's destructive. Or to say, I will follow the rules no matter what. You're going to miss a lot of love. And so we do on either side. Every saint of God has, does, I suspect will. But we got a story here that says God picks up those pieces and recreates, makes anew. Remember the poem I read last week about the poet who died and on his death he wrote a poem for his wife and he said that I will write it and call it Summer 
I'll put it in an envelope, and in it will be a hummingbird. This is the faith of the people of God, knowing that death and destruction and difficulty and separation and loss are just a rhythm of it all. It's a part of it all. Nobody gets off the hook. Even the kings and the saints, the apostles, the prophets, all martyred in one form or another. But there is this energy of God that leads us through one another to God. We need to pay attention to it. And please know that that confusion about what's right and what's wrong is a part of the human predicament. But we do know that all things work together for them that love God and are called according to his purposes. And so maybe that's what Jesus was talking about after all. You know what our Lord Jesus Christ says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, follow that subjective truth. Even though sometimes it gets very confused about what the external rules about all that are. Follow and love and it will lead you to God. I think that's what Jesus was talking about. For God is love, and those who dwell in love dwell in God and God in them. But it's dangerous business. Now, you can go ahead and refuse to follow love as your lead, if you want to, and then it won't be the child you bear that dies prematurely, but it will be you. you refuse to love, it won't be the child that dies prematurely, it will be you. Nothing sadder than someone who has no love. So if you're going to err, do it on the side of love. It's the only way the story will keep going. Of love, be more careful than of anything. So that's what that was all about. So that's why. Who among us has not been in a terrible accident or trauma or loss or death and wonder, why in the hell did this happen to me? Only to discover after seven days some increment of growth, some new creation, some death and loss, knowing that means something. And to go and be affectionate with one we love, and a new king is born. So that's what that was about. It's hard to hold objective truth and subjective truth in the same place at the same time. We fall off on either side. That is to say, I will follow only my heart come hell or high water. That's destructive. Or to say, I will follow the rules no matter what. You're going to miss a lot of love. And so we do err on either side. Every saint of God has, does. I suspect will. 
But we got a story here that says God picks up those pieces and recreates, makes anew. Remember the poem I read last week about the poet who died and on his death he wrote a poem for his wife and he said that I will write it and call it Summer and I'll put it in an envelope and in it will be a hummingbird. This is the faith of the people of God, knowing that death and destruction and difficulty and separation and loss are just a rhythm of it all. It's a part of it all. Nobody gets off the hook. Even the kings and the saints, the apostles, the prophets, all martyred in one form or another. But there is this energy of God that leads us through one another to God. We need to pay attention to it. And please know that that confusion about what's right and what's wrong is a part of the human predicament. But we do know that all things work together for them that love God and are called according to his purposes. And so maybe that's what Jesus was talking about after all. You know what our Lord Jesus Christ says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, follow that subjective truth. Even though sometimes it gets very confused about what the external rules about all that are. Follow and love and it will lead you to God. I think that's what... Jesus was talking about. For God is love, and those who dwell in love dwell in God and God in them. But it's dangerous business. Now you can go ahead and refuse to follow love as your lead, if you want to, and then it won't be the child you bear that dies prematurely, but it will be you. you refuse to love, it won't be the child that dies prematurely, it will be you. Nothing sadder than someone who has no love. So if you're going to err, do it on the side of love. It's the only way the story will keep going. Of love, be more careful than of anything.